At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. You're listening to the Gospel Community Church Sermons Podcast, where we go through books of the Bible, verse by verse and line by line, to hear the truth that God's Word has to encourage, discipline, and bless us in our daily lives. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day. How many of you in here have ever owned a cassette tape player? Anybody? Yep. That's right. What about a, a Walkman? So a cassette tape player, there's subcategories. Walkman, how many still use them? Yeah, I figured there'd be one holdout. Uh, boombox, right? The big boombox, you, you could carry it, right? Um, if you have owned a cassette tape player, inevitably you've been the recipient of or have made a mixtape. A mixtape. Some of you have no clue what that is. You should research it. Um, a mixtape, and you remember the difficulty involved was akin to walking uphill to school both ways in the snow. You see, first you needed said boombox, okay? Then you needed a blank tape and a large amount of time. If recording off of the radio, forget about it. That was the highest of skills because you had to have quick hands because you had to hit record after the DJ stopped talking and before the song began to play. And don't forget the frustration you felt as your tape ran out before the song ended. Oh, the humanity. In all this colossal effort was the ultimate gift. It wasn't just a piece of plastic with music on it. No, it said, I spent all weekend preparing this gift for you and you alone. And this unique gift communicates my specific feelings toward you. The feeling that we are going to discuss today is love. And so, being a man of the 80s and the early 90s, I would have made a mixtape for then my girlfriend, my, my love today, my wife. And so a mixtape for my specific wife would have looked like this. Love, love me do. By the Beatles. Uh, when, a ma- when you love someone, Brian Adams. Um, she likes George Strait, so love without end. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Uh, love can build a bridge. The Judds. I just called to say, Stevie Wonder, uh, you might as well face it, you're addicted to love. Some Robert Palmer fans, uh, as she was, when a man loves a, I want to know what love is, foreigner. And last but not least, and this might trip some people out, I will always love you by, or Dolly Parton, Dolly Parton. She would have liked Whitney Houston. Um. The list could go on. Aren't we trying to communicate to this person a feeling that is hard to communicate, right? We are desiring to show a feeling that is complicated and difficult to express. It's nuanced, and definitions seem to leave us wanting for specifics. So here's a definition of love. You may want to write it down so you don't forget it. Love is 
an intense feeling of deep affection. Well, I, I hope that satisfies you, but I'm sure it, it doesn't. It doesn't because can't we act out love? So love's a, a verb. And are the feelings always intense? Must the affection always be deep? When we are called to love our neighbor, must we initially have intense affections for them? Let suffice it to say that there needs to be a broader definition of love in order to properly convey its meaning. The Greeks agree with this, that love is a difficult and nuanced concept. So instead of using one word that had multiple meanings, they divided love up into four words that had four distinct and separate meanings. They used agape, which is commonly used as God's love towards man and man's love towards God. Uh, it was a selfless love, a selfless and godly type of love. You had philea, which means brotherly love. We use that in the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love, right? Uh, this was a type of love uh, that was for friends, for family and community, and required virtue, equality, and familiarity. You had eros, which was intimate love or sexual passion uh, reserved for the marital couple. You had storge, which is primarily used for love between a parent and a child. It's an empathetic and affectionate love. But even breaking up the words still doesn't give all the details of how to apply it in your life. Many of you in here have read the five love languages. In that book, author Gary Chapman explains five ways that people speak and understand emotional love. My love language is primarily physical touch. I love it when my wife hugs me and kisses me. For her to do that expresses to me value because she values me enough to stop whatever she's doing, and she's always doing something, and spend time embracing me. In fact, I would rather her give me a hug and a kiss than to buy me anything. And some of you in here understand that. But yet, others of you don't. You see, there are multiple ways, five that, that Chapman lists, that we can express and receive love from each other. As I just mentioned, physical touch. There's also words of affirmation. You're intelligent, or I feel safe when you're around me. Quality time, which would be like uh, date nights, alone time, couch time. It would be putting together a puzzle with your child or taking them to the zoo. Receiving gifts. I, I like this one, and I, and, I, and I do this often. Hey, babe, I was just coming through Riverdale, and the hot sign was on. <laughs> And so I thought you might want a half dozen glazed hot donuts. Even though you can put cold ones in the microwave, that doesn't matter. And then you have, then you have acts of service. Um, I'll put down the kids, babe, and, and you go uh, take a shower. Um, let me go and prepare dinner while you take care of the kids, I guess. That's what <laughs> my house was. You're either doing one or the other. You're either doing one or the other. But today, we oftentimes experience what's called distorted love. In distorted love, love means like. Love means lust. Love means anger. Love means fear. Love means manipulation. Love means walking on eggshells. Love means toughing it out for the kids. Love means 
making me feel a certain way. Love means letting me achieve whatever goal I'm seeking, even if it means that I must step on you. I love you means I love the way you reflect my self-love back to me. I love you means I love that you work tirelessly to prove your love to me, thus earning my love in return. I love that you elevate me to a status of God by devoting to me your time, your talents, and your treasures. Your utter devotion to me makes me euphoric. I hate myself for how much I am dependent on you for my pleasure. What if you leave me? Then who am I? Many of, of us in here right now, whether it be a parent, a boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse, or coworker, have experienced this type of distorted love. You may be a survivor or you may still be in the trenches, and it is real and real powerful. For anyone in here that doesn't bear the scars of distorted love, you may not understand. You may even be thinking, well, I'd never stand for that. Why wouldn't they just walk out the door? Or can't they see what's going on? The answer to those questions are just as complicated as trying to, to communicate and define love. If you bear those scars today, please know that you are not alone. Please know that there are people here in this congregation and on this leadership team of the church who understand your pain and who have personally experienced it and who are in varying degrees of healing. Also know that you are not alone because God knows so personally the pain and he bears so really the scars of abuse as they were inflicted upon Jesus. Remember, it was those whom Jesus loved who mocked him, and it was those whom he sought to help that slapped him in the face and pulled out his beard. It was those whom Jesus desired a relationship that turned their back on him as he was arrested and tried and sentenced. An ocean of to-be believers that would place on Jesus their screw-ups, their hang-ups, and their sin and shame and filth. The God-man, hung in shame, covered in filth of the world, Oh, and he knows how you feel. He knows your shame. And he loves you. Not in a sick and twisted love that requires of you more than he gives. For he gave all that you would be loved in a perfect agape love. And certainly not with a love that demands that you earn his love for his love is a gift. Because that notion is absurd. It's anti-gospel that you must earn God's love. God in his fullness needs nothing, yet he overflows his love to his children. There's healing in the arms of the Father. The text today is a clear comparison, then, of true godly love and distorted abusive love, and young David is the recipient of both. Of course, we remember David from the past two weeks, the shepherd boy, the giant slayer, his life course has been sovereignly chosen for him. We saw in chapter 13 that God had rejected Saul as king and declares that his rule would end with no successor, that instead a new king would be established, a man after God's own heart. So Saul knows this day is coming, but he has no clue when or where it's coming about. In fact, he spends the remainder of his days clawing and clinging to his power and his kingdom. But now a shepherd boy, David, is introduced and anointed in a small ceremony in Bethlehem. The prophet priest Samuel anointed him as king. And this future king then slays the giant of the Philistine, cuts off his head. And now we re-enter the story as David 
has been brought before the king after his victory. Open your Bibles to 1 Samuel 18, and let's begin in verse 1, where it says, As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. He loved him as his own soul. This is such strong language. Jonathan's soul was knit to David, and he loved him as his own soul. This is a very strong brotherly love, philea, brotherly love. That is what the Greeks would call philea. This means affectionate regard, friendship, usually between equals. It is a dispassionate, virtuous love, a concept developed by Aristotle. Uh, It's expressed variously as loyalty to friends, family, and community, and requires virtue, equality, and familiarity. And you see, these, the virtue, quality, and familiarity, were qualities that Jonathan and David both possessed. You see, both of them had known military achievement. Jonathan, as we read in multiple chapters back, had stormed and conquered the garrison of the Philistines. In fact, he did it several times. Uh, David, we know, as the giant slayer, had gone up against the greatest man that the Philistines could bring forward. And he defeated him with a sling and Goliath's own sword. Um, Each of them had notoriety. You see, each of them uh, received the praise of the people, right? Jonathan received the praise, and and then Saul took it from him. And and David received praise, and, and, and Saul will take that from him too. So they were each receiving notoriety, yet it was both times Uh, stolen from them by Saul. And they both had the status under Saul, Jonathan as the crown prince uh, and a great military leader of Saul. And here we have David, who had already been brought into his court uh, to play the liar for him, to calm him in his fits of rage. And now he's being brought back into his court um, as a great military hero. But it seems like a much larger working of the Holy Spirit, uh, for David was well-loved by everyone. In fact, the name David means the beloved. The beloved. In chapter 16, it says Saul loved him greatly. Now in chapter 18, Jonathan loved him as his own soul. It will go on to say, but all Israel and Judah loved David. And also now Saul's uh, daughter, Michal, loves David. Everyone loved David because he had been anointed by the Holy Spirit that he would gain love and respect and dignity among the people of Israel as he arose in the ascension as king. It's this common ground plus a large dose of the Holy Spirit's uh, appointing that has placed these two together. Uh, They share one banner and one common mission It's the same Holy Spirit's appointing that has placed us together here. Look around. God has called us to love one another with brotherly love. He has you here as a grace to the people around you and the people around you as a grace to you. Through the power of Jesus, he has given us a brotherly love to love each one, each each one another, sorry. Uh, I have deep brotherly love for many of the men in this church. 
I want them to know and I want you to know that I would give my life fighting for them and I would give my life for them. Because of the love that the Lord has put in me, it overflows for them and for you here today. Now, do you feel that feeling for these people in here? Do you seek relationships with people in this church so as to band with them and knit your souls together as we battle through life unto death? Is this not our call to give ourselves for our neighbor, to sacrifice our needs for one another, to place the focus outward? Because if not, then maybe your focus is inward. Your care and concern is for yourself. Your life is about you, and others are simply your stepping stones. There will be much more to, to come on this as we, again, focus on the relationship of David and Saul. But we're going to here skip verse 2 uh, to go on to verse 3 for a moment to keep our attention on Jonathan. Verse 3 says this, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul, and Jonathan stripped himself of his robe that was on him and gave it to David, and his armor, and even his sword, and his bow, and his belt. In stark contrast to uh, the clothing by Saul, Jonathan is making a much grander and more selfless display of his feelings for David. Jonathan, as the crown prince, would have been adorned in the finest clothing and armor. And first he places on David his robe. Remember, there was no dynasty for Saul. Samuel the prophet had told Saul that because of his disobedience, there would be no successor. Therefore, Jonathan's robes were all for naught anyway. They were essentially not his to be wearing. So in a highly symbolic display of David's anointed status and of Jonathan's submission to his friend, Jonathan takes off his outer garment, made for a prince, and places it on David. This, though divinely appointed, to point to David's kingly ascension in the moment would have been an incredibly humbling act for a prince to do. So Jonathan also placed on David his armor and his weapons. Remember the last person who tried to uh, dress David, don't you? Saul placed on David his king's armor. But it was too big, for remember David was but a boy, and the stature of King David was... Above all others, he was a tall man, a large man. His coat of mail would have been too heavy. This helmet wouldn't have fit his head and would have been clunky and falling around. And we must remember, too, the underlying reasons why Saul would have wanted to clothe David with his armor. Do you remember that from last week? Number one, so that people might think that it was Saul on the battlefield defeating the giant. And number two... Even if they knew it was David, Saul could have taken credit for it because he was using his armor and his sword. But brotherly love is selfless, giving of its best for the sake of another. You see, Jonathan's gifts to David of armor and sword don't po or do point to the future role and reign and military might. Uh, but also he has made a covenant with David. As it will later be spelled out, this covenant was that Jonathan would selflessly give his life to protect David. He therefore now is clothing him with the finest of battle gear, armament fit for a prince. And I have seen the same thing happen 
in this church. Cars have been given away to, to help a single mother. Bills have been paid to keep lights on when a family is struggling or, or without work. We created a GCC moving team to move people to Fayetteville and also around uh, the city. You guys have given your time, your talent, and your treasure to the people of this church, selflessly loving others and giving of yourself to see them flourish. This is true brotherly love. It is what the church is called to do because we are called to imitate Christ as Christ laid off his power and he laid off his prestige to become what we were so that he could die in our place and for our sins for the praise of the father and to the building up of his body the church we have thus summed up the beginning of the relationship between Jonathan and David. We have seen the brotherly love and godly love and affection that the two shared. And we have seen that it was based on mutual love, friendship, and admiration. It's a picture for us to imitate within the church as we walk with our brothers and sisters in love. Now we must look at the relationship going forward between Saul and David. Saul, as we will see, displays not brotherly love, but distorted love to David. And it begins here in verse 2 in the middle of Jonathan's description. Let's go back to verse 2. It says, And Samuel took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. The very first thing we learn about Saul's current relationship now is that he took David as his possession and would not let him go. David had thus far traveled back and forth between his father's sheep and Saul's service. Remember, David first came to Saul's service by playing his lyre for him in his fits of torment. Later, David brought provisions from his father to the front lines of the battlefield. Back and forth, free to go and free to come, free to serve his father and his king. But now King Saul has decided to keep him. David has been conscripted into the service of the king. Conscription would be much like a, a draft. Uh, you see, men are compelled into military service, and that's been going on for many, many years. Uh, much like in America during the World Wars, uh, men 18 to even up as far as 45 uh, would have been compelled for military service with no option or exemptions. But... As we will see further as the layers of the relationship are exposed, there's something more than harmless military conscription. Upon David's great military victory, Saul lays claim to David as his possession. He took him. Last chapter, we uncovered the very selfish reasons why David, Saul would have David wear his armor on the battlefield. Now, since he can claim no responsibility to the success of David there, at least he can claim possession of the hero. Notice how distorted love claims for its possession people that enhance its status. Why does Saul love David and want him around? Because David is a great hero. He beat the unbeatable giant. He has overcome the odds. So he, as Saul's servant, makes Saul look good. Saul looks powerful, and power is coveted by distorted love. In distorted love, I am the focused. I am the powerful. Thus, if you have any power, it must be subservient to mine. 
Saul is now, in his mind, the hero because he possesses the hero. Verse 5, And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Uh, This verse is out of chronological order. This is but a a blurb on the conscription. This isn't what happens next because we'll go on to them coming back from the battlefield with the head of Goliath in his hand. This is but a commentary on even though David was conscripted, even though he was taken into possession, the Lord was still at work. How was he at work? Because everywhere David was sent, he met success. Even though the evil acts of Saul tried to claim those successes for himself. The people, even Saul's servants, loved David. Verse 6 says, They were coming home. So here we're back into the story now. They were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine, back in chronological order. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines and songs of joy and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Listen to this. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. So Saul and his pride and joy, the victor of the battlefield, the giant slayer, his pet, are on their way home from the victory over the Philistines. I can imagine Saul riding a a giant steed and behind him, little David carrying the head of the giant as his trophy. But the victory song was quite a different tune than Saul expected, right? Saul has struck down thousands and David his ten thousands. Now there's nothing wrong with striking down thousands. You know, there are only two men that I know of that can strike down thousands without smudging their Stetson. That's Chuck Norris and Greg Reed. (laughs) But that's not a fair comparison because I'm pretty sure those two are related. (laughs) But it's not like they said that Saul was MIA. They didn't say he was a scaredy cat or a wimp. No, they said, hail King Saul, for his mighty sword in battle, has conquered thousands of foes. But it's important to note here that distorted love thrives off the validation of the people. It, the praise of man is its oxygen. The rest of the song goes like this. But David struck down his ten thousands. You see, the killing of ten thousands of the foes is attributed to David. But wait, I thought that he only slayed Goliath, right? Well, yes, that's correct. But it was that one death that led to the retreat and defeat of the rest of the Philistines. Thus, the 10,000s is attributed to David because if he hadn't followed in faith the Lord into battle, we wouldn't be sitting here today. We wouldn't be sitting here today. 
So what happens when praise is diverted? It says this, it says, And Saul was very angry. But David, you might say, I thought you said that Saul's plan was to force David into his service and by his side to make him look good being in possession of the hero. Oh, that's good observation. Y'all are paying attention. Thank you. Uh, I did say that, but is that what happened? No. David is given credit and the praise, not Saul. Thus Saul's oxygen is cut off and this angers him greatly. Here's a heart check. Can you tolerate when other, others are praised or your spouse or your friends are praised instead of you? Can you tolerate when congratulations are given to them that maybe even you helped them earn? Does your heart gasp for praise when others are around you? These are pangs of jealousy and envy that come from a root of pride. And it's pride that is at the heart of distorted love. That's why the anger... That's why the rage. Look at what happens to Saul as he succumbs to this rage. Verse 10 says, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre. As he did day by day, Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David evaded him twice. Have you ever had your air supply cut off? Maybe you were underwater too long. Or maybe someone had their hand over your nose and your mouth. What did you do? Did you sit idly by saying, well, I'll just wait until this obstruction is gone from my mouth so that I can breathe again? No, of course not. You thrashed about frantically and angry. In fact, if it was someone with their hand over your mouth, you probably punched them in the throat and stepped on their toe. This is because without air you will die. But I just said that the praise of man is the oxygen of distorted love. So when that praise or validation is withheld or misplaced, anger ensues. Here Saul is willing to kill David. For what? Defeating a large army? Playing his lyre to calm him down? No. For receiving praise in his stead. And if once wasn't enough, he tried it again. Saul hurled two spears at David while he played his lyre. Did the mighty warrior bash him over the head with his instrument? No. He merely stepped out of the way. And I know, I know that something inside of you right now is raging that that is not fair. David does not deserve this treatment. He is mentally and physically abused by Saul. Yet he remained. So don't hear me say that you should be a punching bag. Your life is valuable and it's valuable to the Lord. You are God's creation endowed with dignity, value, and worth. That's why right now God is moving heaven and earth to protect you and to lead you through this valley. If you are in the trenches right now, we are here to help. Reach out immediately following the service that myself or Pastor Kirk or one of our uh, counselors may begin to talk with you and lead you through the gospel as applies to you in this valley. We want to, as a church, wrap our arms around the hurting that they may begin to heal. Verse 12, Saul was afraid of David, 
because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander over the thousand. And he went out and came in before the Lord, or before the people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when David saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. If all David was going to do was do everything better than Saul, because the Lord's sovereign hand was upon him, and Saul couldn't kill him, then obviously he should just cast him out of his presence. Not surprisingly, distorted love discards what threatens its pride. You see, it seems like everyone loved David, Jonathan, Saul's servants, and all of Israel and Judah. Basically, everyone on earth that knew of David loved David except Saul. And this was too much for Saul to bear. His pride is constantly taking a hit as people praise not the king, but his servant. And distorted love must have praise. It must have validation. It's the air it breathes. Therefore, if you are not providing that for it, then you're of no use. You're of no value, and you are discarded as we see David is. Therefore, in order to create distance between Saul and his rival, he must send him to the front lines, probably where he will be killed. Let's see what Saul's reasoning was. Verse 17, then Saul said to David, here's my elder daughter Merib. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, who am I and who are my relatives and my father's clan in Israel that I should be the son-in-law of the king? But at the time when Merib, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, Adriel, the Melo, ah, I got onto you, Phil, and I can't even say it. Maholathite. Maholathite for a wife. Remember back in chapter 17, Samuel made a vow, or Saul made a vow, that whoever slayed the giant would receive his daughter's hand in marriage, right? Well, now that time has come. Saul must make right on a vow, but let's See how he play, it plays into his hand. Saul says, I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. There was a condition in which someone could gain the hand of his daughter. Kill Goliath. Well, David killed Goliath. Therefore, he should be able to marry the princess. But now Saul adds a caveat. Only be valiant and fight the Lord's battles. We know David. He was valiant. And he does fight the Lord's battles. That part is irrelevant. You see, Saul is using a distorted love tactic called future faking to lead David with a carrot into his trap, as we will see in the next section. You see, future faking is when someone makes a future promise to get what they want in the present with no intentions of follow through. So it seems that Saul uses the promise of his daughter to embolden a man to kill Goliath. Maybe he never intended to follow through, and now he is not following through again because he gives his daughter to Adriel. Future faking is lying. When a person makes a promise only to manipulate, they do not love you, but instead only love that you do what they want. They lie for their own gain. You see, distorted love will lie, cheat, 
and steal for its own gain. This is because it only loves and values itself. This is the classic case of the means justify the end. Whatever I have to do, whatever I have to say, whoever I have to hurt or step on is totally worth it. If I'm talking to you right now, if I'm calling you out and bringing out your tactics into the light, there's only one thing that you can do today, and it's to repent. It's to repent. You see, the consensus among, uh, I'm not going to be able to say it right, professional psychologists is that there's not much hope of change for someone who practices distorted love. And here's the reason why. Distorted love admits no fault and sees no wrong in itself. The gospel says you are more of a sinner than you would ever believe that you are. But we, but distorted love doesn't believe that. And I'm telling you this morning, if you are practicing distorted love against another, you are a sinner. And the only thing, not psychological evaluations, not treatments or therapies, but the only thing that will save you is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So don't walk out these doors. Don't walk out these doors without repenting and coming to the Lord for forgiveness. Now Saul's daughter, Michael, Michal, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Saul thought, let me give her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law? Since I am a poor man and have no reputation. And the servants of Saul told him, thus and so did David speak. Then Saul said, thus shall you say to David, the king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. There it is. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave his, him his daughter Michal for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Look back at verse 21. You see, Saul takes his daughter Michal's love for David and uses it as a snare. Again, by future faking, for he has no intentions of giving away his daughter, Saul plans to send David into the mouth of the lion, into battle with the Philistine, and requires from him the foreskins of 100 men. Thankfully, I didn't have to do that when I asked to marry my wife. <laughs> I didn't have to do that. Um, and thankfully, he had to kill them first before he, because... <laughs> Uh, but surely we can see the deviousness behind the request. 
not only kill the enemies, but defile their bodies based on their religion by placing on the dead bodies the Jewish ritual of circumcision. So Saul knew that by doing this, he would anger the Philistines against David, who had done such a terrible thing. So, of course, David says, no, that's crazy, right? Well, no. He goes and gets twice as much. He does twice as much work. He brings back twice the bags full of dowry, right, <laughs> to, to his future father-in-law and sets them at his feet. And that just angers, angers Saul. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle. Of course, we knew they would do that. And as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. David definitely kicked the hornet's nest by his actions. The Philistines, as Saul desired, retaliate. But again, David's success outmatches them and any other servant of Saul. In fact, it seems the more Saul attacks David, the more God's hand delivers David and heaps upon him the praise and the honor of the people. As this chapter closes, Saul has exhausted himself and his sanity trying to crush David with his distorted love. But the opposite continues to occur. It seems similar to the attempts of Satan as he fights with the King of Kings and the Lord of hosts attacking his children. You see, his Satan's seeming victory in the garden was no victory at all, right? For through that, the Messiah was prophesied. His seeming defeat over Job was not a defeat at all, was it? Job persevered in faith, and his fortunes were, restore, were restored tenfold. Joseph was delivered into slavery, right? A seeming victory of Satan. Yet, it was only through Joseph's captivity and slavery in Egypt that the nation of Israel would rise to the millions and be sustained and be able to go forth into the wilderness and into the promised land and become the great nation that it became. You see, even today, it seems odd. It seems odd that Satan would continue to attack us, to continue to attack this church, to continue to attack Christians worldwide. It seems odd, but when we look at it through the lens of distorted love, we see that it's his pride that continues to make him attack. Though the fangs of Satan have been removed, he continues to gnaw with his gums because he knows that of his defeat, yet he can't accept the truth that no weapon formed against us shall prosper. No weapon formed against us shall prosper because we are the Lord's, just as David was the Lord's. And then, there was a defeat on a hill. It was called Golgotha, right? There was a defeat. You see, Satan and his men and his demons must have been laughing, cackling, until they, saw, until they saw the curtain torn, until they felt the, the earthquake, until they uh, saw the 
the night or the day turned to pitch black because the fangs of Satan couldn't keep our Savior in the grave. The bondage of death couldn't keep him in the grave, for Jesus overcame Satan and he overcomes our sin in our place and for our sin. Or he died in our place and for our sins that we may have life. You see, Saul of Tarsus, the Romans, the Nazis, communist China, jihadists, no one can stop the spread of the gospel and the will of the Lord of hosts. You are here today as a testament to the fact that God's will is unstoppable. His power is immeasurable and his love is perfect and chasing after you right now with a love without end. Amen. 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 So if you recognize today that your love is self-focused, if it's manipulative or angry, you must, as I said, act today. Today is a day of repentance. Do not leave here. Do not walk out those doors telling yourself that I am the problem or that your spouse is the problem or that your childhood is the problem. Because I know if you walk out of here, your success rate for change greatly decreases because you can rationalize your behavior. You can tell yourself it's not your fault, but sin but sin must be rooted out by the gospel of Jesus who died for you and who gives you life that you don't have to love in an angry and a manipulative way because you were not loved in that way. You were loved in a perfect way through Jesus, the only salvation that you can experience from distorted love. If you bear the scars today of abuse, and the lashings of distorted love. There is hope for you today. Jesus says, I know how you feel. I was mocked, shamed, ridiculed, broken, outcast, burdened, whiplashed, and bled for you. Jesus is a Savior who identifies with His people and through their sufferings and pain. Specifically, Jesus' blood, when it flows over you, it not only cleanses you of your sin, but it cleanses you of the sins that have been committed against you. Therefore, you are presented spotless and without wrinkle because of the great blood of Jesus. Accept the gospel of hope, the gospel of healing, the gospel of the blood of Jesus Christ to the glory of God today. And no one can take that from you. Finally, church, we must be a place where deep, true, godly, brotherly love grows and goes out. We must nourish our friendships so that they will go well below the surface levels. We don't want surface level friendships. They must go below that level where you've seen me on my good days, but specifically on my bad. We must love to do good for one another, building each other up in love. We must pray for one another, serve one another, before you leave out of here today, accept this challenge. Would you go to someone that you haven't sat down with a meal with and invite them to coffee, invite them into your home? Don't leave here today without plans for this coming week. Hey, we, we, I haven't gotten to know you. I, I haven't had the chance to break bread with you. I haven't had you to my home. I haven't been to your home. Well, can we meet this week? Can we get together? Because 
we must be knitting ourselves together, banding us with a tight brotherly love so that we can go out of these doors, so that we can together go out of these doors and face Satan that wants to devour us and face a dark city and a dark nation and a dark world that needs the light of Jesus to be shown in those dark places. And we can't do it by ourselves. We are a band of brothers united under one banner and for one common mission to make disciples that make disciples that make disciples that make disciples for Christ. Let's pray. Father God, we can do none of this without the power of your Holy Spirit. We cannot repent, but for the conviction that's laid on us by the Spirit and the ability to act on that conviction, despising our own looks, despising our own pride, despising our own willingness to make ourselves look good. May we submit to your love today, your love which is a perfect love, an agape love, a love that is selfless, selfless and pure. May we accept healing in the arms of a good, good Father as we accept the, the blood that cleanses us of our sins and the sins committed against us. And may you compel our hearts this morning to knit ourselves with the brothers and the sisters here in this church that we may be united under your banner, the banner of Christ, the banner of the gospel of hope, and go forth into this city aflame, aflame on fire for your purpose and for your will and ultimately for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Thanks for listening. Feel free to share the contents of this podcast, but please do not alter it in any way without permission. Please like, follow, and subscribe to us on Facebook or iTunes. Visit gospelcc.com for more content like this. At Gospel Community Church, our mission is to know the Bible, share life with others, and bring hope to our city and the world. Thanks again and have a blessed day.